Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. The main reason for this declaration is not because of what is happening in China, but because of what is happening in other countries. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this is our ninth extra episode devoted to the coronavirus crisis. And you just heard the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, declaring the coronavirus a public health emergency at the end of January. Tedros is the man in the eye of the public health and geopolitical storm whipped up by the coronavirus, and we'll hear much more about him in just a second. Also today, we'll travel to Stockholm. As you know, Sweden has taken a very different approach to COVID-19 from most countries. You might call it lockdown light, with the emphasis more on the light than the lockdown. And we'll find out why the country has chosen that strategy and how it works from our correspondent, Charlie Duxbury. But first, let's talk Tedros with our senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Andrew. So we're going to talk today mainly about an article you've written together uh, with our colleague in Addis Ababa, Simon Marks, which is on our website now. It's about uh, the guy who in many ways is in the eye of the storm at the moment, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, more commonly known just as Tedros. Um, And he's someone obviously who's trying to manage uh, the response to this pandemic, also someone in the middle of a big uh, geopolitical battle between China and the US. And and we'll get into all of that in a moment, but maybe just start by giving us a sense of his backstory. Uh, What did he do before he became the head of the World Health Organization? Well, Tedros has this really remarkable combination of health experience and diplomatic experience. So he sort of rose through the ranks of Ethiopian politics as the country's health minister. And he is really globally praised for helping Ethiopia build um, a network of health centers and health workers that is really the envy of Africa. And he was praised for really using donor money really effectively. And then in 2012, I believe, um, he became Ethiopia's foreign minister. And there he was continuing to to interact with international donors. And that group of international donors included kind of the typical groups that we think of, like the US and UK governments, the Gates Foundation, but also increasingly the Chinese government, which was really showing a lot of interest in Africa and Ethiopia during that time. And then in 
2017, the WHO was choosing a new director general. And there was also kind of this general sense that it was Africa's turn. Uh, Tedros was really seen as, as kind of a leading light of African uh, health officials. He was an experienced diplomat. The African Union presented Tedros as their choice. And um, he ended up being chosen by a pretty wide margin after beating out a British doctor. Okay, and his track record, as you say, was was generally highly regarded in Africa, but it wasn't without controversy, right? Absolutely. He had quite a bit of, of controversy. He was a member in good standing of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which was the ruling party in Ethiopia at the time. And they were accused of, of a lot of repression of political opponents. As far as Tedros in particular, he's been he's faced some accusations that he was directly involved in some of that repression, but nobody can really pin anything specific on him. And he's been quite successful in kind of saying, look, we were a new democracy. We weren't perfect. I'm trying to do good work. I've had a lot of, of success as a health minister. Where he has personally faced accusations is he's accused by watchdogs of covering up three cholera epidemics in the country by insisting that they be called acute watery diarrhea um, that can kind of prevent the international community from coming in and maybe getting people the help, they, help that they need. But it can also protect those areas from potential economic consequences. It can protect the country itself from sort of embarrassment because cholera is really a disease of, of poverty and lack of sanitation. Right. And I assume he denies those um, allegations as regards uh, cholera, but that brings us very uh, neatly into the the situation that he's in now. So here he is um, in the middle of this current crisis, uh, dealing with a pandemic and at the centre of uh, a geopolitical storm, uh, in particular between the US and China. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, suspended funding to the WHO. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Can you just sum up what the what the tension is, what the accusation against him and the WHO is uh, with regards to China? China is is now subject of broad skepticism by many leaders throughout the world world who think it's likely that China was not honest early on about what it knew. There are increasingly signs that the novel coronavirus was floating around, maybe even outside of China, well before China first alerted the world to the problem on December 31st. There are a lot of signs that China tried to avoid acknowledging that there was human-to-human transmission. They didn't let people from, from outside of China come in until kind of late in the process. So that's the kind of broad accusation against China. The criticism that is being directed at Tedros, notably by Trump, but also by several others, is that he helped China not actively cover up, but that he sort of let them get away with it. He offered quite a lot of praise to China, um, in some cases uh, applauding China for its transparency when a lot of people really feel like that praise was not warranted. The speed with which China detected the outbreak, isolated the virus, sequenced the genome, and shared it with WHO and the world are very impressive and beyond words. So is China's commitment to transparency 
and to supporting other countries. In many ways, China is actually setting a new standard for outbreak response, and it's not an exaggeration. Some people think that he should have been more vocal in saying, hey, we don't know if we can trust China's data. China's not letting us get the, all the access that we want. Trump, in particular, has um, accused Tedros of basically being in China's, China's pocket and is saying that this delayed the whole world's response. And many people feel that Trump is basically scapegoating the WHO and Tedros, while they're sort of a, a sliver of reality and truth in them, also see them as political attacks. What does Tedros, what do his defenders say to this criticism? So they say a couple of different things. One, they say, if you look very closely at what we were praising China for, it was very specific things that they were doing well. They also say, look, uh, we cannot force any country in the world to let us do anything. And so if we really embarrass the Chinese and criticize them a lot in the public sphere, there's a risk that they will just further retrench and be even more secretive. And they point as a big victory um, that in late January, Tedros actually flew to Beijing, met with President Xi. And after that, the Chinese allowed an international group of researchers to kind of go in and observe their response and try to learn more about the virus. So he's the first African to hold the role. Has, has that been a factor? Has that uh, affected his tenure so far? Yes, that's actually been kind of a consuming a consuming issue. So so when he ran, he said that he really wanted to change the the leadership of the WHO. Um, historically, it's been rich Western white leaders and donors kind of dictating to poor countries around the world how to change their health systems. And he said, look, Africa is the recipient of all this help. Don't you think Africans and, and Asians and other Latin Americans should be more involved in the decision making? And so he's actually made some controversial hiring choices by fast tracking decisions to bring in different types of people. Um, and so he has been successful in completely changing the gender balance of the leadership, uh, much more diversity in the leadership. And, and that's something that his supporters say is his most important success. Um, at the same time, he has also faced some personal attacks that are just purely racist that have really apparently intensified uh, in response to, to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, there was a very emotional moment in a press conference about a month ago where he talked about some of that. I can tell you personal attacks that has been going on for more than two, three months. Abuses or racist comments, giving me names, black or negro. I'm proud of being black or bl proud of being negro because that negro is black, black is black, and I'm proud. I don't care, to be honest. And thank you for asking that question. Maybe for the first time I would make this public even desperate. I don't give a damn. And he had another interesting comment where he talked about nominating the chief nurse from a small island nation called the Cook Islands and how there were a lot of really dismissive responses to that. And he said, yeah, that some of that might be ignorance, but it's also arrogance and people not wanting to, to be open to talent from other parts of the world. 
Right, and what's he like as a person? Because I think you've met him a few times. How does he come across in person? So he is a really interesting character. He is very charismatic, very warm. Um, Some people have made the point that he actually makes uh, Europeans uncomfortable because he can be kind of very demonstrative and emotional. He calls everybody my brother, my sister. There was a a uh, press conference recently where he was thanking Europe for organizing this pledging conference. And he was like, oh, I want to thank my sister, uh, von der Leyen, or my sister, (laughs) Ursula. To thank my sister, Dr. Ursula van der Leyen, for her leadership uh, in, in the pledging uh, conference. Um, I had a one-on-one interview with him not long after I had written an article highlighting some of his early hiring controversies, and, and the WHO and his allies had really not liked that article. Um, but he did a one-on-one interview with me. He kicked his handlers out of the room. Um, he stayed long after our kind of interview was scheduled to be over. I think he actually even risked being late to a meeting with then Commission President Juncker um, in order to keep uh, keep up the interview with me. And then um, he started WhatsApping me personally. And he was WhatsApping me like late into the night after our interview, like thanking me for the interview and telling me how important it was. And I was sort of like, um, I need to go to bed, but I feel like I need to keep like acknowledging his text messages. I'm not totally sure what to do, but you do hear that from other people that he is very um, accessible. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, the line of communication over WhatsApp uh, doesn't seem to have um, successfully continued since that immediate aftermath of the, of the interview, but it, it really did reflect his personal style. Right. Yeah. It sounds like someone with quite a lot of political and, and uh, diplomatic skills. Have you tried sending mm-hmm. him a GIF? Maybe that would kind of loosen him up. <laughs> He probably is actually better at, at Twitter and, and, and WhatsApp and that sort of thing than I am. Mm. So what's next for him and for the WHO? Where do they go from here? What's kind of next on the agenda? Well, immediately coming up is the World Health Assembly. And that's sort of the equivalent of the UN General Assembly, but for the for the World Health Organization, it's usually this 10-day long um, meeting in Geneva where they discuss all the different things that the WHO works on. Instead, it's now just going to be two days. It's going to be a virtual event. And the really the only agenda item that they're discussing is a resolution on the coronavirus response that's led by the European Union. And it has two elements that are both related to these discussions that we've been having. One is everybody does feel like China has not been very transparent. And there's great eagerness to just determine the origin of this coronavirus. And then there's also an item on um, access to any new therapies or vaccines that come out. Um, Intellectual property is always a very um, hot topic because it relates to drug pricing. That issue often pits the U.S. against the rest of the world. And we have seen, particularly with coronavirus, signs that the U.S. doesn't necessarily want to share medicines and vaccines. So we expect that to be a very hot button issue as well. And it will also just be a time for countries to have the chance to kind of weigh in, um, even if it's somewhat informally on Tedros's leadership. Okay, well, we'll watch all of that with interest. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thanks, Andrew. That was Sarah Wheaton, our senior health reporter, and you can read her story, written together with Simon Marks and headlined The Doctor Making Trump Queasy at politico.eu. Now, let's head for Sweden and talk to our correspondent in Stockholm, Charlie Duxbury. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? 
Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. The sun's shining today, so yeah, it lifts the spirits. Yeah, great. Um, so obviously, uh, Sweden has uh, become famous for being uh, something of an outlier in terms of the measures it's taken to combat the coronavirus. The economy start to reopen here in the U.S. Some are looking at Sweden. Sweden has gone for a different approach. Is this a gamble? This policy. We've been using sort of uh, Sweden as this sort of case study. Can you just paint a picture for us of, of life in in Stockholm in Sweden? Um, you know what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. How's it been over the last couple of months? The key difference over here has been for many people, especially those who have children, is that the schools have been open for the for the younger children throughout this, and that when the the authorities decided to leave the schools open, I think that was the point when when people in Sweden realised that the country was going to go in a different direction to to its immediate neighbours. What happened was that the authorities decided to take a much lighter touch. They came out with a lot of of guidance, not so much sort of rules and regulations, but guidance um, to say, you know, keep your distance from people, try and limit your use of public transport, work from home if you can, and stay away from elderly relatives and people with underlying health conditions, and then they kind of left it at that. So people were, were left making their own decisions. I, forget it. I guess it took a bit of time to, to bed in, but people sort of adapted their behaviour. But you know, life kind of continued as normal, but at a slower pace. And are there any actual you know, rules? Are there any things that have been banned or closed? I mean, we've seen where I guess the government has decided that people's behaviour is getting a bit too close to the line. They've stepped in and lent on. Um, I'm thinking particularly the ski resorts, where ahead of the Easter the Easter break, it looked like the ski resorts were going to be open and that people would be riding up and down on lifts and, and, and potentially, you know, going to restaurants for, for after ski and so on. And it did look like that was all going to go ahead until the government at the last minute kind of lent on the resorts and pretty much told them to close. We saw the same thing with the football. Children's football continues because the authorities decided that they want the kids to be out and about and getting as much fresh air as they can. But they've then said no, um, no parents are allowed to watch, no fans are allowed to attend the games. Um, but at the same time, they've, they've shut down all adult football, for example. So they've been quite sort of specific about the, the rules, but they've been as light touch, you know, very light touch about it, I would say. And in terms of bars and restaurants, because in a sense, you know, you're probably at the point that other countries are sort of hoping to get to now having, you know, imposed much more severe lockdowns. So, for example, bars, restaurants have remained open, I understand. Right. How have they gone about then doing the whole social distancing thing? Yeah, so as you say, bars and restaurants have stayed open. The idea was that the people would not be allowed to be served at the bar, you had to take a table and those tables were to be, you know, spaced out, ideally a metre and a half, two metres apart. Um, and that seemed to work for a while once the, those initial guidelines were introduced. Then as the sun began to shine and, you know, holidays came up, we started to see the government getting a bit fidgety about people sort of crowding into restaurants. The Swedish Public Health Agency has banned queuing at restaurants, pubs and bars, which all remain open and full of visitors. The country's not imposed lockdown measures, but the city of Stockholm will make efforts during the Easter weekend to stop crowds in restaurants and other establishments. At a news conference, the state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell said the authorities will shut down businesses that do not comply with the law. So they, they went in there over the Easter break and shut down various places. They, they get, I think what, how it worked is you get a warning and if you don't 
follow the regulations um, and you get another visit, then it's you shut down on the spot. You do have that. It's not like you shut down for good. You've got a, a chance then once you're closed to rearrange your furniture or whatever it is that you need to do to get in line with the regulations and then and then reopen. So I think, I think largely that's what's happened. Yeah. Have you been out and about much? I mean, are you not, do you notice it when you're, do you think yeah. this, this looks and feels different? Yeah. I mean, obviously winters are long and hard in, in Sweden. So as soon as the sun starts to shine, you know, you do try and get out and, and enjoy it while you can. I mean, you, you're aware that when you go into these places, you see this kind of people want to be there. They want to socialize, but they are, I think I would say the people are doing their best to follow the rules as best they can. And where you see bars maybe sort of slightly flouting the rules, you, there is a bit of self-policing goes on and you do hear muttering from people. And so what's driving all of this or who's driving it? Because it is such a markedly different response, you know, as you say, compared to the immediate neighbours, also to co- compared to places like here in Belgium and in big uh, European countries. So, you know, who or what has, has driven this approach? So it's the public health agency has very much been in the driving seat, and um, Stefan Levien, the prime minister, has taken a back seat, if you like. He's been he's been in the picture, he's made speeches and so on, but it's been made very clear that it is the the public health agency which is running the show. Um, Anders Tegnell, the the head or the the, the sort of the face of it, if you like, um, the lead epidemiologist, he's out most days giving updates and so on, and taking sort of brief questions from. From reporters. Uh, last night, the US President Donald Trump said that Sweden is suffering very greatly. I wondered if you were surprised by that assessment and if you share his opinion. No, as we said here before, no, we don't share his opinion. Of course, we're suffering. Everybody in the world is suffering right now in different ways. But Swedish healthcare, which I guess he alludes to, is very difficult to understand, uh, is taking care of this in, in a very, very good manner. You know, because Sweden is such an outlier, those questions have been, you know, quite robust and people have been concerned and those concerns have been put to him and he's he's kind of pushed back with you know as best he can try and explain how it was that you know we ended up here when none of the neighboring countries did and it you know is the points that they've made of being well this we looked at the figures we looked at the theory we looked at whatever studies were out there and this is the decision we've made and and we're sticking with it so mm. And what, but what's the sort of kind of overarching justification for, for taking this path that's, that's so different from the one that others have chosen? Anders Tegnell's response to that throughout has been, um, the key word has been sustainability, that he wants Sweden's approach to be sustainable. He didn't like the idea of locking down, coming out, having to lock down again. I thought that would be more disruptive for people than this lighter touch, but maybe for longer. Um, and behind the thinking is also that they they would never say that they're aiming for herd immunity uh, and so on. But what they would say is that they want a slow spread of the virus throughout the population at, in a, at a manageable rate. So they would, I think, they would consider what's happened so far as largely a success in that the, the hospitals haven't been over, overwhelmed. It seems to continue to work reasonably well. Uh, we have about the same amount of new cases every day now. We had that for quite some time. The number of people entering into healthcare is also approximately the same. So it means there's a high pressure, but not an increasing pressure. So, so far it's working. But, you know, the situation in the elderly care has been an acknowledged failure. And, and Mr. Technal has acknowledged that that has been a problem. And the other thing is obviously, I mean, the death numbers are higher in Sweden than in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your immediate neighbours there. Um, 
you know, how do they justify that or how do they explain that? And and has there been much, you know, pushback to this approach given that those numbers are higher? Yeah, there has been pushback, Andrew. Um, Well-known public health experts within the major universities and so on have penned editorials saying that we that Sweden should be more in line with its neighbours and that, that this is, you know, a recipe for disaster and so on. But then the, the health agency have stood firm and said they don't believe that that's right and that they say that places like Finland where you know death rates are much much lower could be looking at a problem once they relax their more draconian rules um sort of later in the year whereas Sweden will should see a much reduced second third fourth wave you know god forbid mm, mm. but the idea is over that you kind of need to judge this over the long term rather than than immediately that's right yeah that's exactly what they're saying. Yeah, they're saying you know this could be years before we we have a you know a good idea of what was the right way way to go. And what about relations between the neighbours? Because obviously, some you have uh, Sweden has very close uh, relations, a kind of open border, I think, right with with Denmark. Obviously, very closely connected to Norway. When when countries are employing such different strategies, how does that affect um, you know relations with the neighbouring countries? How have they dealt with it in terms of have there been any border restrictions or anything like that? Yep, there are border restrictions in place, and you know, and travel to to Norway, Denmark, and Finland is, is not allowed. If you do, you know, if a Norwegian comes over to Sweden and goes back, which they obviously like to do because the prices here in the supermarkets are much cheaper. If they do that, which some of them did do actually over the Easter holidays, they're, they're then required to be in quarantine for two whole weeks. So, you know, wow, that's you really need to do a lot of shopping to make that worthwhile. Exactly. You'd need to be shopping for the village, I think, to make that, that pay. <laughs> um, but that, so they'd be looking at two weeks in quarantine and then they've had police that along the border as best they can, you know. Mm. Looking ahead to the holiday season, any um, you know any concern or talk about whether Swedes are going to be able to, you know, head south? That you know that some countries may say, hold on, you know they haven't been doing lockdown properly. Mm. Uh, we're not going to have Swedes, you know, in our kind of southern European holiday resorts. Well, I think I mean the feeling here is um, I think I heard the foreign minister talking about this is that you know we shouldn't expect to travel anywhere at all. I mean even just travel within Sweden has been. They've been trying to get people to stay in their local areas and they're very much sticking to that line for now. So, you know, the expectations are being very heavily managed that maybe you wouldn't even be allowed to travel to other parts of Sweden um, during the summer holidays. So I think if people could travel further afield than that, then they would consider that to be, you know, a, a nice surprise. So obviously lots of people here have, have the little summer cottages in, in, the, in the countryside they like to visit. So I think if they could get there, they would feel that, that would, that's actually you know, better than expectations. Mm-hmm. And is there any plan to, to kind of relax even these relatively relaxed measures that you have already? For example, allow larger gatherings? I think, what's, what's the number at the moment on, in terms of how many you can have? And- uh, f- uh, 50. Um, so no, as far as I know, I mean, as we were saying earlier, you know, this, the idea of this sustainable approach is that you, you introduce it and then you leave it pretty much unchanged so people get used to it and you leave it untouched for, for a much longer period. So that's the way things are looking. And on the political front, is there any party that's come out uh, kind of against this approach, or does it have kind of broad political support? Um, pretty strong support so far. Around the, in the margins have been debates about could there be a little bit more funding for this or that, or but very, very much backing the, the public health authority for now. But we'll we'll see how long that lasts. Charlie, uh, thanks very much. Uh, Keep us posted on how it's going. Thanks, Andrew. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. 
If you like the podcast, please take a minute to click some stars and write a review and click subscribe so you get every new episode automatically. You can always send us feedback directly to the email address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back on Thursday with another regular edition of the podcast. But until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.